listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of ACB Advocacy Update. This is Claire Stanley, the Advocacy and Outreach Specialist here at ACB. And Clark Rockfall, Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind. Thank you to everyone listening over ACB Radio, as well as those who have downloaded and are streaming via their favorite podcast player. Why do you always say their favorite podcast player? Maybe they download it from another podcast player. Well, then that's unfortunate. (laughs) I'm just, you know, just pointing it out. No matter how you're listening, (laughs) we would like to thank Sprint T-Mobile. Definitely. For their sponsorship of the ACB podcasts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Clark, today we are going to talk about going back to school. So, yeah. This is that horrible time of year. The dreaded time of year. Where you start to see... Oh, geez. Was it a a Kmart commercial? Yes. The dad on the shopping (laughs) cart, you're running down the aisles, pushing the cart, jumping on, like legs stretched out, and they're playing the Christmas music, the most wonderful time of the year. You know, which is actually a very appropriate and uh, interesting thing to bring up because we usually talk and think about going back to school shopping for clothing, but do we need to go back to school shopping this year? Ha ha. Are we going back to school in person? Yeah. Do we need books, pens, paper? Do we need new gym shoes and back-to-school clothes? Or do you sit on your couch in your pajamas? And everyone's getting new tablets, phones, and computers. That's true. For back-to-school this year. Yeah, for sure. So we have three awesome guests that we're going to talk today. Um, We're going to talk about education both in the K through 12 setting as well as the university and grad school setting. So our three speakers today represent the parents of K through 12 students, uh, the university students themselves or grad students, as well as the faculty or staff who work at the university. So pretty cool, pretty cool um, spectrum of perspectives. And from all parts of the country as well, um, because we, we know the impact of the coronavirus. It's not uniform across demographics, across geography. So what are those different perspectives? How are different regions of the country or different academic environments uh, reacting and adjusting and accommodating, whether it's students with disabilities or working with parents with disabilities who may have young children? Yeah. Yeah. So buckle up, stay tuned, get ready, whatever you want to call it, and we'll be back with our first guest in a second. Great. Well, we're excited to have our first guest speaker today um, coming from the perspective of a student at the university level. Um, I'm really excited to have her. She is a, uh, we're very proud to have her, I should say, as a previous ACB scholarship winner. Um, So without further ado, Maureen Hayden, would you like to introduce yourself briefly to our listeners? Yeah, hi, I'm Maureen Hayden. I am a graduate student at Texas A&M University, and um, I'm going into my fourth year. And I've also been, um, I got my bachelor's at University of Rhode Island, and then I got my master's at a small school called Walla Walla University in Washington State. So I guess you could say I'm just a long time student. <laughs> Did you intentionally just try to bop around from one one region to the other? Was that your goal? Actually, no, it wasn't. Originally, <laughs> um, I went to school for a few criteria, but I guess that's kind of the beauty of marine biology is you can pop around. And I'm also a world traveler. So I'm 
I'm not really limited by location and that's the fun part of my job is I get to travel. That's exciting. I love that. So, uh, so we're here today to talk about the impact of COVID on school because um, none of us would have imagined what COVID would do to school and then even more so what COVID would do to school as it impacts people with disabilities and those of us in the blind community. Um, so today we're hearing from you as a student at the university level. We get to hear from a parent. We get to hear from a university employee in the disability um, services office. So um, I'd love to just kind of hear a little bit about your experiences starting back this, I guess we were almost in the spring when it all happened, winter, spring. Um, what were kind of your initial reactions when it first started in March? Um, definitely my initial reaction on a personal level was to stay home, <laughs> no matter what the university <laughs> said. Um, but it was a lot to adjust to completely online. Um, and that was more for me as a graduate student being a teaching assistant and having to do the teaching part of it. Um, but I think as a student, I think the hardest part from my student perspective was the scheduling because I really am a person who thrives off of like a place and a time to be somewhere. And so while it's great not to have to commute and plan that extra time into your day, having classes all day at home, especially in an apartment where even though I have a desk, I don't have a separate room uh, for working. Um, I had to be very mindful about when was school time and when was end of day time to not gotcha. let those lines blur. Yeah. Maureen, typically outside of or pre-COVID, what was your day-to-day -day schedule or routine as a student and um, graduate student teaching assistant? Yeah, so let me start off by I'm not a morning person. So <laughs> my normal work day would be like 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Um, and then some days I would have extracurriculars. So yeah, I usually like to have that morning time from like 8 to 9 to just wake up by myself and then 10 to 6. But my problem is, is I'm also a night owl. So I found at the beginning of March, I would stay up really late doing stuff because I could. Um, but I quickly realized that that was not good for my work-life balance to be constantly working, especially when you're just in your, your place of residence all the time and you can't physically separate it. For sure. So just a quick million dollar question, since we're talking about universities and COVID, what are you guys doing in the fall at Texas A&M? Are you guys going back? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I know as of this point, um, there are changes to some of our class times and passing periods to allow for cleaning and disinfecting uh, between classrooms. And there's also been a lot of changes to the lecture halls to allow for um, like distanced spacing and protection. And then additionally, at this point, 50% of classes, according to our provost, are offering face-to-face -face options, but it is not mandatory. Mm. Um, with that said, all of our classes will be offered via online, should students choose to go that route. Um, and then if students too do depend, do, if students do want to attend classes in person, our university does have a mandatory face covering policy. Um, but with that said, even though we are getting updates from our university provost and our president, um, 
there's a lot of them. <laughs> so you have to be kind of vigilant with your email as far as like, okay, what's, what's the update? And then our university has a lot of web pages with like Q and A is about what is a face covering or when do I need to be wearing a mask? Um, all of these things. So they really are trying to give us updates, but also give us a lot of resources to clearly communicate their expectations. Gotcha. At Texas A&M, um, I guess, how many students are in attendance? Because when you yeah, say a, so a class or a lecture hall is at 50% capacity, um, what is 50% for a lecture hall? Yeah, to give you an idea, Texas A&M is a huge school. Um, so there's 60,000 students and the campus oh, is wow. like two miles wide by five miles like long. And that's not mm -hmm. including like our satellite campuses around town. Um, but the typical lecture hall seats about 300 to 400 students. So I think with the reduced capacity, they would be at maybe like 100 students or less. Interesting. That still seems uh, intimidating to me. It's like, are we still really social distanced even though? <laughs> but uh, yeah. And then they are also adding a lot of extra study spaces this fall as of the last update. So they're going to be adding a lot of what they call air conditioned like units mm -hmm. or tents around campus with coffee carts and like web accessibility um, so that students can have socially distanced study spaces other than the libraries, which have also been modified for protective distancing. Interesting. So speaking of web accessibility, um, a lot of schools that are either going completely online or hybrid online, um, there's a lot of learning platforms that are used. As somebody with a visual impairment, and then especially since I'm assuming as a TA, as a grad student, you have to work with students through those platforms. Have you had pretty positive experiences or and is any of the accessibility frustrating or what's what's that been like? Yeah, so our school uses Blackboard, but we are switching over to Canvas. Um, specifically for me, I use text-to-speech more than I use voiceover. Mm -hmm. um, but with using Blackboard, one thing I find frustrating is you can't enlarge the text with the accessibility features, like on Blackboard itself. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, like, it's pretty easy to navigate with the voiceover options. Um, I think the hardest thing is like as a teacher that you can make exams and quizzes accessible, but you have to do it one question at a time and one like question answer option at a time. So if you have a multiple choice question with four pictures and you want to add photo descriptions to each photograph, you have to go in and add it one at a time and it significantly increases the amount of work for the instructor at least with pictures to make that content accessible. And then I don't know, I tried talking to IT, same thing with making exams with just automatically large print embedded in the online quiz. The default is like 12 point font, but I usually do my default font whenever I make assignments to like 18 point, just to be inclusive. Yeah. Uh, but every time you make a new question, you have to set those text parameters and those font parameters. You can't do like a universal setting for an entire assignment to say, I want this whole assignment to be 18 point Verdana. <laughs> that sounds very laborious. Yes, but I prefer to just as an instructor, think of inclusivity on the forefront. Now, when it comes to Zoom, like I love the live transcript option. Um, awesome 
especially because I know for some students like reading is more great, like accessible. And then now they also have the enlarged text feature for the chat box, which is great. Um, but I think as far as Blackboard, I know we're switching to Canvas, so I can't speak for what new things might be in store for that learning platform. Well, as a, 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 an ACB member, as you being an ACB member, it makes me very proud to hear that you uh, emphasize accessibility. So keep it up. <laughs> and Maureen, there... you mentioned Zoom. Is that the preferred, um, the preferred webinar platform or distance learning, uh, like video course platform yes, for Texas so, A&M? Yes, so Zoom is our preferred platform for Texas A&M, we have like a special business license. So as an instructor, you get, you know, the more than 45 minutes, you can do the whiteboard, multiple screen sharing. Um, and also as an instructor through the web platform, you can do a whole bunch of administrative uh, tools, like some, for some classes or webinars I've attended, you have to register so they can see like what time you logged in, um, et cetera. And for Zoom, as far as accessibility, I think they're making strides every time you update the app. Hmm. That's good. How, um, you know, when you think of a university, and like you said, it, your university sounds huge. How are some of the other accommodations going to look like? Um, things like uh, transportation on campus, school bus systems, things like that. Are they going to make the accommodations for health and safety? Or do you know what kind of different processes they're having for that? Yeah, so the bus system is a great topic to bring up. Um, so in addition to a mandatory face mask covering policy for our campus, that also includes our campus transportation in any shape or form. Mm -hmm. um, so our buses require face mask covering, social distancing on the bus as needed. Um, I believe it's only 15 passengers per bus and then oh, wow. the bus driver will pass you by and you'll have to wait for the next one. Mm -hmm. um, and then additionally, you have to enter and exit through the back door so that way the driver is kept safe gotcha have um as people with disabilities some of those accommodations can be a little um difficult for instance like if the bus passes you by not knowing if they saw you have you guys been able to have any conversations about those kinds of different changes um so we haven't had anything yet but right now the student body count is pretty pretty low so i'm interested to see what's going to happen when um classes start but the university and transportation services has been sending out just like the provost and the president constant reminders about the bus system and i imagine with the influx of students they're going to be sending out a reminder uh any day now about the number of students allowed what's going to happen um, if this bus is already at max capacity and they've already stated things like plan extra extra time when traveling. Um, but that's a great question. Like maybe priority could be given to students with disabilities for boarding the bus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it sounds as overwhelming as it sounds getting flooded with emails. It sounds like Texas A&M is trying to do a great job to to communicate with their students. So that's awesome. Um, and then as far as other on-campus things, I know for me, with my work days, I'm trying to do as much as I can remotely, but for days when I go into 
prep teaching materials or work in the lab, I work smarter, not harder. Mm. So I may only be going in two or three days a week, but I sit down, I write down a list of what I want to do beforehand. And um, I just kind of get things done when I need to get them done so that I have stuff to work on at home later. That's great. Just curious because I know nothing about science and you are the marine biologist. Is uh, working in laboratories and things like that pretty um, safe these days with COVID? Are you guys able to get in there and do what you need to do and be safe at the same time? So laboratories also look very different. Uh, right now, we our lab specifically does not have any undergraduate research assistants and we only have one person there at a time. Uh, we have extra disinfecting measures and in general, we're just trying to not spend time in there unless our experiments mm -hmm. are essential to our research progress. Um, so just trying to work efficiently and effectively. So it seems like the graduate student community as a whole is still trying to do research, but very socially distanced and a lot of places are scheduling their labs on calendar rotation so that there's only one grad student there at a time and everybody has to wear masks and lab coats. It's, it's very different. Um, and then as far as my field work with beach collecting, normally I'd be a lot more active, but um, for the summer it stopped temporarily because of the national park, like because of the beach mm -hmm. park closures. And then if I am gonna go sampling this fall, it's gonna be on a very reduced schedule. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much for sharing some of your experiences with us. Uh, it's a brand new uh, frontier. Definitely. It's a brand new frontier for us all. And uh, I think the most important thing is just that we're all flexible. We all take a minute to breathe and we just keep communicating. Mm, yeah, that's kind of, uh, I think what we're going to hear from a lot of people today is that communication is a, a big, a big important tool. So. Yeah, and embracing and that ACB core a, value of flexibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's okay to get, frustrated when things happen like you know out of the blue but I always find it's really important to take a moment pause reflect why were you upset initially and then address the issue um because I think one thing I've learned professionally is that our emotions can easily take hold of how we would handle a situation and it's very frustrating especially sometimes as a person with disability and still kind of getting across that universal idea of in inclusivity um, mm -hmm. as a forethought rather than an afterthought. Mm -hmm. um, but you just need to be mindful that there's so many changes happening right now, you know? For sure. Well, thank you so much, Maureen. It was really fun to, to talk with you. And it's so interesting to hear how different universities are handling things this fall. So um, we hope everything goes well. and We hope you stay safe and I hope you have a great fall semester. Thank you so much, Claire and Clark. I hope you also stay stay safe and um, good luck with everything. It's hard to believe summer's almost over. <laughs> Great. Well, to our listeners, stay tuned. We'll be back in just a minute with um, a different perspective on education from that of a parent with uh, children in K through 12 education. TV. 
Great. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed hearing the student perspective, and now we're going to hear the parent perspective. Um, we have lots of parents in ACBU who have uh, kids who are still in school, and we are sure that just like students who are in school, uh, there's lots of challenges because of COVID-19 um, that impact parents with students. So we are very excited about the parent perspective we have because we have our very own Tony Stevens who's going to give his perspective. I usually like to say introduce yourself, but I feel like most of us know you, but give us your 10-second introduction, Tony. Thanks, Claire. Hi, everybody. This is Tony Stevens. I am the Director of Development for the American Council of the Blind, but more importantly, I am also a dad with an eight-year-old and 10-year-old boys. Wow. I can't believe they're eight and 10 already. I feel like I they know. were just little little kids. <laughs> oh, COVID has made them both 14 and 14, so. Oh, no. And Tony, you've had a bit of a, a whirlwind here this year. Uh, we're coming up on six months with you rejoining ACB as Director of Development. Um, basically, the same time you came back to the office, everyone left the office. Yeah, um, so, yeah. So, so what's it been like pulling together a virtual conference and convention um, and homeschooling? Well, I, I felt like our paths didn't cross, Clark, because you were out after mid-year, or not mid-year, we don't call mid-year. Oh, well, that's five Leadership bucks. conference. I got to pay $5. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was post this rule apparently, but yeah, so, you know, I, I started and I don't think our paths crossed in person until the convention almost. Um, right. But, you know, I live up in Baltimore city, right off the Harbor in Baltimore in downtown Baltimore. And, you know, I was doing the commute for a week and a half and then our kids were scheduled to be out for, a, a teacher work day and they said the day before the teacher work day you're not coming back so don't come back on Monday and it was it was complete uh you know it wasn't a huge surprise because we were all sitting there thinking okay when's this gonna start it's the you know you started you know the, Seattle had started to do it yeah. California uh -huh. had started to do it um, and then Governor Hogan, Larry Hogan in Maryland, just jumped straight in. I mean, he got a head start before a lot of states. Um, I think we may have even stopped school before even New York City did. But yeah, and and just uh, just jumped full in. And Baltimore City, uh, you know, was kind of like, well, we're we're going to try this distance learning, and it, and that's where we still are today, apparently. So. So speaking of distance learning, um, what it's we're, we're in the end of July right now. Um, I think this podcast will actually air in August. So school is literally just around the corner. Uh, I know I live one county away from you in our county. They're going purely virtual. What's the Baltimore planning to do? Do they have they made a decision yet for the fall? Baltimore technically is making a decision. I think they've made it this week, but I haven't seen news from it yet from the board, the, the way the city school is set up. Um, they, they went ahead and announced we're going to be distance learning, so okay. no in-classroom education, but they haven't really given us any information. And, and they've said we're going to reassess it in October, um, mid-October, around what would be fall break. And, and, and see if it's gonna stay that way. But this is exactly what they did in the spring where it was constantly, well, it, they would say, okay, well, April 1st, we're gonna tell you if we're gonna go back <laughs> to school. And then May 1st, and it's always has been in, in Baltimore City at least, and I'm sure other districts around the country, 
where it's like this constant like dangling in front of you the unknown and that that's been one of the hardest things about it is, is a parent is just you know a parent that works and, and both my wife and I work two you know full-time jobs is trying to figure out the, what the future is because the 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 fact that nobody had planned for this or even thought of what this would would entail has has left everyone sort of in this holding pattern. I mean, some places have just said, "Okay, we'll we'll do it all year," but but yeah, Baltimore City is in a place to say, "Well, we're you know they they didn't even you know other counties in Maryland like Prince George's and Howard County, you know some of the bigger counties um, were already going ahead and saying what they're going to do, and, and Baltimore tends to tends to not be the first to jump in the pool. And uh, so, you know, we, we still aren't really sure about the details because it's also amplified because we have a brand new principal this year. So we haven't even had uh -huh. a chance to meet the new principal that started July 1st. And I don't even know if the teachers are better. You know, it's like we're going to have a new principal leading our school into a school year that nobody knows what it's even going to look like yet. So. That sounds very stressful. <laughs> Just a little. Just a little. <laughs> Just a little. So... We know we've talked a lot, like we just talked to a student in the university setting, um, and we've talked about, you know, kids who are in K-12 about accommodations during COVID-19 now that we're mostly virtual or the hybrid situation. But what's it like as a parent, you know, your kids are coming home or staying at home with work, and I know a lot of schools are using tablets or learning platforms. What's that like as a parent who's blind and trying to work with your kids at home, and is are the programs generally accessible? Uh, what's what's that dance like to work with them? The first few weeks, there was a lot of stepping on feet um, and a lot of just unknown. The city didn't even know what they were doing. I mean, every <laughs> the, the two teachers, I had a second and fourth grader last year, and both teachers were completely different in the way they approached education. I mean, this is a whole new type of pedagogy for for teaching children. And one was like, you got to come to the school and pick up about 200 handouts like dittos Jeez. that weren't accessible at all whereas the other teacher was was much more not computer not not you know technophobe uh and and was trying to find ways to get the kids into the the side of technology and i didn't have too many headaches we we're using several platforms uh, that but ultimately you know everything kind of was like throwing things up against the wall and seeing what stuck mm -hmm. and Google classroom finally stuck more. And so they've been leaning more heavily on Google classroom, which I feel like is for the most part, mostly accessible as much as okay. anyone that's ever dealt with the Google products and the Google, you know, you have to know how to sort of work with the accessibility within Google's ecosystem, you know, sort of ecosphere. Um, yeah. But once you figure that out, it, at least I could start knowing what my kids were doing because there was a point because my wife would be going to work and I would be teleworking, but she's a physician. So she has to go see patients. Um, she can't work from home. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's the thing where she would be leaving and I'd be stuck with the kids and I would have no idea what they're doing, especially the one in second grade that was like, what I, you, you, you tell me you have these dittos, but you know, he's just playing roadblocks and Fortnite, like getting on, he's like, Oh, I'm playing games. And there's no way, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, you know, even my older though was busted by the teacher saying, why do you keep looking away from the screen? Well, it's because he had a tablet uh, in his hands playing a video game, you know? So there's no, 
real teacher oversight to help make sure the kids are paying attention. So if you're working, that's a hard stress as it is, because you have to be like the student teacher hovering over your child. But when you factor in the accessibility issues of, of things, um, you know, it, it made it difficult. One of the things that made it most difficult or most aware is understanding the already existing systems. People who are blind, we always try to find workarounds and, you know, sure. uh, it's hard sometimes to tackle huge entities on an accessibility bug that seems so minor. Um, so we would already had a lot of online systems with Baltimore City, um, but you, you, you get workarounds and you're used to meeting your teacher after school every day and asking a question versus going online and trying to navigate what your kid's assignment was or what the grade was. Because we, we were using this one system, the whole city school system uses, that wasn't accessible oh, in wow. as much to say, I, it wouldn't let me figure out how to choose. It, the part to change from one student to the other student wasn't accessible. Mm. So I couldn't, I, I only knew what Elliot was getting, my eight-year-old. I could never find out what Oliver was doing. So I'm sure Oliver loved know, that. <laughs> so it's like choosing favorites by inaccessibility, you know. But, but you know, you realize how much more compounding that stuff is when, when the other ways of workarounds are thrown to the curb. Because no longer could I see my kid's teacher. Yeah. After school, we weren't allowed in the school property. You know, it's like you're banned from, you're banned from regular communication, and you're you're. It's like you're forced or pigeonholed into this online world, where it's just a lot harder organically, to to kind of work as a person who's blind, in just normal ways of communicating with your teacher, and yeah. those normal sort of ways to you know, are all forced into this this ecosystem. Like I said, with Google, it became more accessible, but. But yeah, there was a there was a point where there were weeks and weeks where I was just clueless and had no idea what my kids were doing, no idea what I was supposed to be doing, and mm -hmm. and I feel like we're, I'm hoping we start off the new school year not in that same position because it'll be very disheartening to think the city hasn't learned its lesson and had a chance to at least try to get their head around how they're even going to do this because it's Tony. hard. Elementary school kids to teach is, is in this setting is hard yeah it really is sure. and tony you mentioned that the the system and the learning dynamic is new for everyone it's new for parents for students for the the school districts and you have technology that are some are more accessible than others how willing have the teachers and the school administration been to work with you and your family to find those new workarounds it has been a challenge in that not even I think they know what they're doing. So, mm, yeah. um, it, it, it is, you know, the, the older kids teacher was better about communicating a little bit better with me and, and via email at least, you know, or we would do a zoom catch up. We were able to get that set up where I could do like a zoom, you know, time, like an office hour type thing, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it, uh, it, it was like a, a public, you know, we were able to get it for a bunch of, you know, it was like an open public meeting. You see, you don't, you don't get like the one-on-one -on -one student teacher conversations that you would get. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, but it was, it was something that was, you know, I, I feel like even the teachers don't, don't know what's going on. And, and so they don't know necessarily the best way themselves to try to adapt, you know, so. 
Great. Well, thanks for sharing your, your experience with us, Tony. I know it's, you know, as we, we talk through this podcast today, it's interesting to hear from both the parents and the students, K through 12, university level, everything in between. It's, I think we're in a, a kind of like you implied, an uncharted territory. So it's interesting to see how it's going to impact the blind perspective, both as students, employees, and parents alike. So thanks for sharing your, your experience with us. And Tony, before, before we let you go here, uh, I like that you mentioned that everyone's you know figuring this out as we go along. It's a, a lot like ACB's virtual conference and convention, you know, building it while we're flying it. Um, yeah. Just one one last question for you. Um, what recommendations do you have out there for parents who might find themselves in the same situation? I mean, you made me think of our convention. I mean, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there needs to be. Uh, you know, I think a, a greater realization that that uh, that parent and teacher need to find ways to to more organically communicate and and almost as if the parents and this isn't just for blind accessibility but for any parent, you know, almost like we're the student teachers. I remember in college I was an education major for a while and did a, a semester of student teaching, and it literally is like. But, but the student teacher's in the classroom every day with the teacher. There needs to be, I think, a lot more communication between t- parents and teachers across the board, um, just, so, just so we know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and flexibility. You know, one of the things about our convention was we had to be extremely flexible. I think the school systems need to let teachers and parents identify that flexibility as well so that they're not forced into the city or the county or the school district saying, you must do it and you must do it this way. There needs to be adaptation and flexibility at play um, so that we can, we can make things more accessible, not just for people with disabilities, but for parents that you know, are, are in a sense feeling shut out and, and as mm-hmm. if they're, they're finding it inaccessible in ways of just communication gaps. So there needs to be, I think, greater leverage for teachers to empower teachers and let them let them have more flexibility with the parents. And so parents equally need to, I think, step up and, 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 and push for that so that you know, we can figure out the best way to get our kids what they need to know by the end of the school year in their, in their little, little growing brains <laughs> so that we feel like at the end of the year, it's not just like we're awash and we're just doing whatever we need to do to get a federal dollar from yeah. the Department of Education and some federal grant, you know, uh, so they need to they need to think of something completely new. I mean, this is this is an opportunity to completely rethink education for the 21st century, and we're forced into it. But we shouldn't walk away from it and think we just need to to make it like it was at 180 days, meeting these metrics and these benchmarks. And no, that, that, it's not like that anymore. I feel like I've heard that from so many people that we should use COVID as an opportunity, and it, you know it, we can laugh, but I think it's so true. Great. Well, thank you so much, Tony. We appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll have you back on the podcast many more a time. So thanks for chatting with us. Thanks so much. And folks, stay tuned. We'll take another quick break and then be back with our next guest. Great. Hi, everybody. So we are back with our third guest. 
of the day, last but definitely not least, we are going to talk with Gabe Lopez-Cafati. Um, so, so far we've had a parent of an elementary school student, or students, I should say. We've had a grad student herself, and now we're going to have a kind of a cool different angle with somebody who actually works for the Disability Services Office at a university. Um, so, someone who kind of knows the, the ins and outs of working at, at the, the school itself. So, um, without further ado, before I start asking questions, Gabe, do you want to introduce yourself? Who are you? Where are you from? <laughs> Thanks, Claire. Glad to be here. Um, like Claire said, my name is Gabriel Lopez Cafati. I go by Gabe uh, from Miami, Florida. And I work as adaptive technology specialist. And uh, that's probably a more complicated title for <laughs> or what is more typically known as special accommodations coordinator. Great. So the first thing I've been asking all of our guests today, um, what's your school doing? Are you guys virtual? Or are you in person? Or are you a hybrid for this fall? What's the plan? Okay, so the plan for the fall is uh, very interesting. We are starting off online. So everything's going to be virtual. And um, our semester, our fall semester is set to start on September 1st. Uh, at the end of September, we will have, well, the authorities uh, will have a uh, process where they will be reassessing and reevaluating the health situation in our county. And depending on how things look, if things seem to be better, we will be switching to a hybrid um, okay. environment. If not, we will stick for uh, we will stick to um, strictly virtual until and they haven't announced when would be a second review date within the fall semester. They've only announced that we'll have our first review date on September 27th. So the way it's going to look if we happen to go hybrid is um, part of the classes are still going to be online, and then there's going to be a component of in-person classes. Mm -hmm. Now, not all of the classes are going to go in a hybrid mode if the hybrid is authorized. Um, mainly the essential courses where uh, the students, where it's very essential for the students to meet one-on-one. -on -one. For example, firefighter academy, nursing school, um, any, any, uh, any courses that have a lab incorporated, like chemistry. That makes sense, yeah. Um, only those and uh, by hybrid it doesn't mean that everyone's going to show up the same day hybrid yeah. model uh, what we're looking at is probably if a class meets twice a week one of the days is still going to be online and then the other day is going to be half the students in person and then the next the following week it will be the other half of the students coming in person so they're uh, really trying to social distance and keep the yeah classes Correct. The idea is to keep the classes with a limited number of students so that everyone can observe social distancing. Gotcha. So um, when we've been talking to the people today, it's been obviously just in the school in general, but then also more specifically for people with disabilities. So do you feel like um, you guys have some good plans in place to accommodate students with disabilities? I know when we talk about virtual, 
me speaking personally as somebody with a disability, we know that software isn't always accessible or professors just don't always think about what they're doing. Um, have you guys been brainstorming ways to really make sure that you accommodate uh, blind students with the different um, processes that are out there? Oh, absolutely. Yes, we've um, we've started the process, obviously, in March uh, mm -hmm. when we transitioned and um, we have been uh, our our department access services has been working jointly with uh, you know different uh, with network services and um, and with uh, the faculty and mm -hmm. also with the design team um, you know people who manage our LM LMS which is uh, our learning management system which is Blackboard so we we have been working uh, together with them running tests. I have personally been checking for accessibility, and um, on the other side, on the more personal side with students, I have been working with uh, students one on one to make sure that they have all the tools that they need at home to begin with, and to make sure that they are fully trained on how to use the virtual platforms like Blackboard and Blackboard Collaborate. That's so encouraging to hear that a school is really taking the effort to to make sure students have the tools they need and that they're actually testing the the services that are out there because when I was back in college, I don't know that was always the case, so that's really encouraging to hear <laughs> <laughs> same here, same here, Claire, and that's why uh, we take it very seriously uh, and I specifically also being a person with a disability also being blind I take it very seriously because I know how much that can um, mean the difference for uh, not only the success rate of our students but also um, some students are just most of our students are very resilient and and and, mm -hmm. and they're go-getters and and they're really really uh, wanting to achieve their goals so we know that eventually they'll get there but we're also aware that it you know to make things better and to make things to make them give them the time the energy the headspace to be able to focus on the strictly academic portion of their coursework while we worry of the logistics and the accessibility so they don't have to split their mind and say oh my god i have to think not only of completing this assignment or uh, finishing this paper, but I also have to think of how am I going to do it? Is it going to be accessible? Am I going to have the tools and the assistance to do this? Yeah, that's that's such a good point because I think a lot of times for those of us who are blind, our brains often have to be split that way. So what a what a great thing to be able to accommodate students so they don't have to to always be scrambling to do that. I'm just curious, are there, my assumption would be that certain classes take a little bit more creativity to do them virtually or hybrid, things like science labs or things like that. Yeah. Has it been interesting <laughs> to brainstorm ways to do them? <laughs> it, it has been very interesting. And usually for any, any disability service office, the big, the big um, challenge, even even in an in-person environment has always been what we call STEM, you know, science, technology, yeah. engineering, and math. Um, in, in this virtual environment, we have been working um, in, a, in a way in which we not only have 
um, a combination of technology, but also human component. Mm. We have been able, yeah, we have been able to work in a way where we assign, if, if it's, a, if it's uh, for example, staying specifically in the realm of a blind or visually impaired student, um, we typically assign note takers. So mm. what we have been able to do is we get a code for a note taker to be uh, able to attend the virtual sessions. They okay. take notes and then they meet with our students through either Blackboard Collaborate or, you know, just on, you know, using personal FaceTime or phone call yeah. to go over the notes and then try, they transcribe the notes in an accessible format. And it's something that's also very unique that we're doing and we're still maintaining. We're maintaining virtual tutoring. Uh, mm. Unfortunately, tutoring is only for the general ed courses. We do not have tutoring for like the very advanced. Like if someone's taking, um, you know, engineering 3209, <laughs> we're not <laughs> going to be able to provide a tutor for that. But we do have tutors that are specialized only for students with disabilities who are meeting with our students uh, virtually. And that's something else that we're making sure that we keep in place to make it make it um, not easier. Easier is not the word because it's definitely not easy, but to make it more manageable for yeah. our students and to know that, that you know, uh, you and I both have, haven't gone through a higher education setting being blind. We know that it sometimes can be, I don't know if it was your experience, Claire, but when I had to take a hybrid course, n nothing related to COVID or any specific uh, situation, just because that's the way the course was designed, mm -hmm. um, I, I did not enjoy the hybrid, I mean, the online part so much because I like, uh, I like that person-to-person -person contact. I like to yes. know that I have office hours that I can knock on a teacher on a professor's door and sit down and discuss something I, I i really enjoyed that aspect of you know taking my laptop and being able to show them my work and being able to get feedback right there no i totally agree i think you only did one online course in college just to get it done with and i think my my experience was the same that you know i don't want to do this on a regular basis so i agree <laughs> <laughs> that's great so I'm sure like a lot of things, um, there's always a limit to time and money, resources, faculty, but if you had a magic wand and you, none of those things were limitations, what would kind of be your like wish list so you could make sure that the students had everything they needed for this fall? <laughs> that, the, your last words are, the prob are probably the, the beginning of my first words in terms of magic. <laughs> <laughs> All they need. Mm. Uh, you know, like you said, uh, limited resources in many cases are, 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 are a very hindering situation. Yeah. And I wish that my students, at least uh, blind and visually impaired students, would be able to have access to all the technology they have, they need at home. Um, For sure. To be able to complete and to be able to make things easier. Um, because when we're in an in-person setting, sometimes, um, you know, vocational rehabilitation, Department of Education, Division of Blind Services, whatever you want to call them, mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't give them everything they need, even if it's justified or they take 
longer yes. than than necessary. That's a topic for a totally different a whole podcast, other conversation. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but what happens with our students is that uh, they're able to bypass those flaws uh, in the system because we do have all of that at our department at Access. We have everything. We have uh, you know full labs with computers with um, fusion. Uh, other magnification devices. Mm-hmm. We even have a, 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 I forgot the exact name of the device. We have a PF, which is uh, the, the, to convert charts into tactile. Um, mm-hmm. We have OCR galore, etc. So whatever they cannot do at home, they come to class and they stop by at access and yes. they make their appointments and, you know, I set them up and then they're able to do everything right there. Um, so my magic wand would be for them to be able to have everything because I know that on our end, we have done everything. Uh, we've made our websites accessible. We've worked with faculty to make sure that they provide everything. We trained our faculty on how to set extended time for testing. Um, we have our tutors, like I mentioned. Um, but when they go home, that's when, that's when I suffer for, for our students because I know that many of them do not have mm-hmm. the updated equipment that they will need. So my magic wand would be to make magically make uh, all the technology that they need appear on their desktops at home so that they can rely on what we're doing, what, the effort that they're putting into their classes and having the equipment because we know how important assistive technology is for us and how oh yeah how monumental the changes and the level of of efficiency that um assistive technology can bring in a in in a higher education setting yeah it can really make or break the experience i didn't even think about that my university around the time i was graduating from undergrad opened this beautiful what did they call it uh the center for accessible technology the cat um and it had all the new bells and whistles um which is great but i didn't even think about that that yeah if you can't go to campus you don't have access to that anymore and yeah how sad that the technology is sitting there but if you can't if you're quarantined and you can't go to campus then you suddenly lack all those different resources. So that's, that makes a lot of sense. So. Yep. That's, that's, that's really, um, that's really why I think, um, like I said, magically, if I could have (laughs) them have all that at home, I would definitely do that because I know that would, that would solve so many, so many of the challenges that they're facing during this virtual, uh, era yeah the virtual era i like that well thank you (laughs) thank you so much for sharing with us gabe we really appreciate it um it's been really fun to hear the various perspectives today of again students versus parents versus employees and then k-12 versus universities so i feel like we've gotten a really good um spectrum of perspectives today so thanks for sharing your your perspective with us we appreciate it awesome claire thank you for reaching out and uh let's continue to see what this online setting brings for all of us well but thanks Gabe <laughs> thanks well 
we hope everybody enjoyed those three guests. Uh, I just want to say thank you again to Maureen, Tony, and Gabe. You guys were awesome, and you brought to the floor some pretty awesome perspectives of all the different angles that education takes. So thank you again, you guys. And Claire, what were some of your biggest takeaways from those conversations? Um, I think just, and I'm, I'm also prefacing, prefacing this with um, some congressional hearings that I got to, I'm doing air quotes, sit in on, um, that talked about these very issues by the Senate um, Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee, or HELP. But there's a lot of discussion about um, the technology and how school's going to look really different. Um, and I think that's a big thing. I know one of the Senate HELP um, uh, hearings I sat in talked about funding for technology because suddenly, like we talked about at the beginning, you're not necessarily buying pencils and paper. You have to have technology, um, especially for students with disabilities. Uh, technology is essential, but the technology that you use might not be accessible to kids with disabilities. So then you have to go a step further to make the technology accessible, which costs more money and more time. So I know, for instance, in some of the stimulus packages, there was a ask for more money to pay for assistive technology. And Gabe did a really great job about talking about all the different, I often call them toys, all the different toys <laughs> that are out there to make things accessible. Um, but like Gabe talked about, you know, you have those at the university setting, but students go home and they don't have access to those anymore. You know, what are they gonna do? So there's this disconnect there, which is a big problem. And if you're using these toys or interfacing with your class and your professors or teachers online, uh, there are still a lot of people in this country that don't have internet at home. Yeah. So what sort of policies are being done there? We hear a lot about the digital divide yep. and here at ACB, we're fortunate to work with um, several or collaborate with several of our corporate partners, um, Comcast and communications and charter cable come to mind for the, the work that they do with the internet essentials program. And they've shared that with ACB members at the convention, as well as on community events earlier this year, uh, just trying to get more, uh, more students, more households online so that they are able to maintain employment or maintain education throughout the COVID pandemic. It's true, and just, you know, not to be a Debbie Downer, but to play back into all the different accommodations that are need for students because of the digital, digital divide. I heard a lot of speakers in Congress talk about ideas like uh, playing different educational resources through PBS so that student could get their education mm. that way. Well, I'm sure that's not gonna be audio described and it's not gonna be accessible for kids with disabilities who are blind or visually impaired. So really having to think outside the box when people are already thinking outside of the box to educate kids and then students who are blind or visually impaired are falling behind, you know, even even further behind than the other students. So a lot of a lot of creativity has to go into thinking how we can accommodate these kids. And some of the things that stood out to me, both Maureen and Tony touched on ACB's core value of flexibility. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're all becoming pros at being flexible and adapting to the changing environment and climate. Um, in our different areas, you know, what's open, what's closed, how do we interact with um, merchants, grocery stores, or online shipping companies. But guess what? That's going to have to take place with how we adapt to the upcoming school year as well. And then Tony also mentioned communication. How important is communication going to be? You know, how can we ensure that either our children 
have the resources they need or as parents that we have access to those resources to work with our children and their uh, their professors, their teachers, their principals. Uh, and then for Marine, in the, the college student's perspective, how can we ensure that as university students that we have the assistive tech, you know, working with folks like Gabe, and that our teachers know the accommodations we need and the workarounds that we have. Um, and as Maureen said, learning new workarounds. Mm -hmm. Definitely have to be flexible um, to learn those new skills and then communicate what's working and what's not working as we are all learning on the fly. Yeah, I agree. The flexibility is such a huge thing. Like even Gabe talking about how their their college, their camp is go is gonna, you know, temporarily do do things virtually and then kind of on on a month by month basis reassess. So students really have to be creative and be willing to deal with all kinds of new environments. I I think I would be overwhelmed if I my class could change at a a month's notice. So students are really being really flexible and staff and parents as well. So it's definitely a a whole new frontier out there. And Claire, you mentioned the congressional hearings and the, the Senate Help Committee. Um, their website's help.senate.gov if you want to check out what they're up to um, on your own. Uh, and they, the Congress is not done addressing this issue, right? There are more hearings to come? There is. There's another one this week. Um, I believe in the House it is. I'll have to, we'll post it with the, the posting so you guys can access it. But it's being held on August 6th at 2 p.m. And anybody can watch it live via the Internet or go back and, and watch the archives. But similar things will be discussed for K-12 through issues. So it's a definitely an ongoing issue because it's huge. Education is so important. And these are a lot of issues we've never had to deal with before so we're suddenly having to tackle these whole these brand new topics that we never thought about before and for anyone listening to this podcast if you are encountering accessibility barriers in the classroom or with digital uh, learning tools claire what should they do please reach out to us at advocacy at acb.org. We want to hear about it. There are so many different learning platform systems out there. Different school districts are doing things differently. Um, so many different variables. So please reach out to us so we can hear about it and we can assist where we might be able to. Absolutely. Well, everyone, thanks for checking out the podcast. Hope you enjoyed it and more to come. Right, Claire? That's right. And remember, what do we always say? Keep advocating. listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. You can reach us by emailing advocacy at acb.org. The ACB Advocacy Update is a production of the American Council of the Blind in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about ACB, visit us online at www.acb.org.